you're just here for the first time and you're saying, Jonah, I've heard of that guy, he's the one that gets swallowed by the fish, you are exactly right. But let me catch you up to speed with where we are. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. In other words, he is a mouthpiece of God. In the Old Testament, God used prophets to speak his truth to the nations, usually to the kings of, of Israel, whether the southern or the northern kingdom, but sometimes, like in Jonah's circumstance, outside to the nations of the world, they became the mouthpiece of God. And Jonah's ministry takes place after the kingdom of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the north and the southern kingdom. And Jonah is working in the northern kingdom under the rule of a guy by the name of Jeroboam II. And Jonah receives this word from the Lord to go and preach against the great city of Nineveh because its wickedness had come up before the Lord. Now we know that Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was the dominant, powerful empire at the time. They were pressing south. Literally from the north, they were coming south, and soon they would overtake the borders of Israel and haul them off into exile. But the uh, Assyrians were awful people. They were nasty. They were barbaric. Um, Nahum's entire prophecy was sort of written against the wickedness that had unfolded with the people of uh, the Assyrian Empire. They were all about like commercial exploitation and witchcraft and prostitution. They murdered women and children during times of war. I mean, they were just awful people. So Jonah receives this word from the Lord to go and preach against this great city. And we know this was a huge city. And when Jonah receives this word from the Lord, how does he respond? Well, he just runs. We explored this last week. I mean, Jonah takes off. Literally, he runs down to the Mediterranean coast to a city called Joppa, boards a boat, and he sails for a Spanish coastal town named Tarshish, which literally was on the other end of the known world. And we kind of drew this big map up here, and we explained where it was, and it's all the way up there, and, and Israel's all the way down here. I mean, Jonah just bolts. Literally and physically, or literally physically and spiritually, Jonah just leaves. God says, go, and Jonah takes off in the farthest opposite direction from Nineveh that he possibly can. He crawls aboard the ship, and last week we learned that he got into sort of the the belly of the ship, and he falls asleep. And while he's sleeping, the Lord sends a great wind, or, or really from the Hebrew, God hurls a tempest. And the storm is so violent and so powerful, the boat begins to break apart. The sailors freak out. They start throwing everything they have overboard, trying to save the ship, but the ship is coming apart. The captain and the sailors come to the same conclusion, we're all going to die. So the captain runs down to, uh, to wake up Jonah and he says, Jonah, you got to get up, call on your God, help us out. We're calling out to our gods and we are going to drown. Don't you care? Jonah comes back up and he looks at them all and he says, listen, this is all my fault. I am running from the Lord. The reason we're facing this storm, this tempest, is because God is pursuing me. So the sailors go, well, what do we do? I mean, Jonah, if this is all your fault, how do we respond? And then it's sort of this un, kind of amazing, remarkable response, unexpected response. Jonah says, throw me into the ocean. I mean, even more spectacular than the fish story that makes this whole kind of book famous, Jonah looks at those sailors and he says this, throw me into the ocean. In other words, kill me. I am the reason that the storm, that the Lord is bringing the storm upon you kill me and we were fascinated by that response because it's just out of our realm of thinking Jonah would sooner die than surrender his life to the Lord and we pick up in this place this week where Jonah has just told these sailors to kill him to throw him overboard and we learned a couple of of really important things that I'm just going to quickly run over from last week the first is that we learned that when we run from the Lord it's disobedience and disobedience is sin 
doing battle with the Lord over control and tension in our lives, wrestling with God for control and for power is actually disobedience. And disobedience is sin. And Jonah was living in the middle of it. And when we fight God for control of our lives, we're living in sin. We also learned that God, or talked about the fact that God is completely and totally sovereign, which means that God is in control of everything. He is overall, in all, and through all, and all things are because of him. There is nothing that is beyond his control. And the sovereignty of God does not mean that God has the right to govern and rule all things, but it means that in all things God does govern and rule and permit all things. All things are because of him. There is nothing beyond his control. God is the wind hurler, as we explained. And the third thing we kind of landed on was this, is that with the Lord, there is always reason and opportunity to turn back. Jonah had come to a place where he was unwilling to turn back. There was no going back, so throw me into the ocean. But because of Jesus Christ, we have the promise that there is not only always opportunity to turn back, but God empowers us to turn back, that we've never come to a place where our pride should allow us to say, God, I can't do this. So I'm just going to continue to fight you. But we come to a place where we lay our lives down and we say, God, I need you to rescue me. I mean, we look at Jonah and we say, you know, the right response Jonah would be to say, look, turn the boat around. Turn it around. I am running from the Lord and he will not take the storm away from us until we let go. And I turn back and I head to Nineveh and I do what God wants me to do. But we fight God so often in spite of the obvious. And we explored how this sort of ironic nature of a God who knows all and is all and through all, and we know nothing, literally control over nothing. We can't understand what happens in the future. We don't have control over the things in our life, and we fight God for control. And how ridiculous that is, that God knows all and is so powerful and mighty and wants what's best for our lives, yet we wrestle him for control when we're called to just lay it down. So, All that to say this, we pick up and Jonah's just looked at these sailors and said, drown me, throw me into the ocean. Book of Jonah, chapter one, we're going to wrap up that first chapter um, today. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Jonah, chapter one, we're going to start in verse 13 this morning. So before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you just for the stillness and the moments of being able to gather here in, the pl- in this place and encounter your word. Lord, we know that your word is living and active and that it penetrates our hearts. And that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And God, we pray that just for a moment this morning in the stillness that we have here, you would speak directly to us. Take just a second in your heart and just ask God to speak to you this morning. Take a second and pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name, even if you've never seen them before, just whisper that God would move in their lives. Let's be in the habit of praying for the people around us. Lord, we pray that you would move deeply in our hearts, convicting us and challenging us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we'll pick up in verse 12, which is the the last verse we ended with last week, just so you can see a little bit of crossover. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 12, Jonah says this to the sailors, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, for it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. And all at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah looks at these sailors and he says, the storm is because of me. I've been running from God. God will not let the storm subside until you toss me into the ocean. So throw me into the water. But these pagan sailors have sort of a a different mentality. They think there's no way we're going to kill this innocent man. I mean, he's done nothing to us. And they recognize that throwing Jonah into the ocean was certainly going to kill him. He would drown. So the response we hear from the sailors is instead, they began to row for land. And the Hebrew there, word that we use for the word row, is actually the word dig. Which you can kind of see the fervor and strength in which they approached. They, they took their oars and they dug into the ocean to try and row back to land. But you and I know this wasn't going to work out. I mean, the seas grow rougher and rougher, it tells us. Until finally they have no actual response except to cry out to Jehovah. To cry out to the God of the Hebrews. The one that Jonah worshipped and said, they said, Lord, you can't hold us accountable for killing this innocent man. I mean, if we throw him over... He will die. We've done everything else that we know how. We've thrown all our cargo over. We've tried to get back to shore. The seas are growing rougher. And so Jonah is telling us to throw him over. Don't hold his blood against us. And they cry out to Jehovah, to God. And then they take Jonah and they literally pitch him overboard. Now I find this really fascinating simply because I don't understand why Jonah couldn't just jump in the ocean. But I like the idea that they throw him over. And for some reason in my mind, I have their picture of one of them holding their legs and the other one holding arms, like you threw your little brother into the pool when you were a kid, kind of for distance to see how far you could get him away from the boat. I, I can't get that out of my mind. I have no idea why Jonah just wouldn't jump in. But nonetheless, they throw him overboard. And as soon as they do, and as soon as Jonah hits the water, it says the sea goes calm. I mean, can you imagine what these sailors are experiencing. This is the storm of their lives. I mean, they've witnessed storms before, but this one was nothing like anything they've ever seen. The boat was coming to pieces. They couldn't fight it. The seas are going rougher and rougher, and they take this man, they throw him overboard, and the seas go to glass. Still, quiet, no wind. From absolute chaos to absolute calmness. And as I think about this in my head, I imagine there's some really awkward moments there. Because as as perplexed and as in uh, in awe as they are of everything that happened, Jonah's still right there in the water. I mean, it's not like he just sunk like a stone. I mean, probably dog paddled around a little bit in an ocean that is now glass. And there's that weird tension of saying, everything's just calm now. And they're looking down at Jonah and you can hear everything. And you almost want one of those sailors to be like, hey, are you okay? I mean, this is weird and crazy and this storm that was that was raging is now awkward and I feel like 
well, should we pull you back up? I mean, you're not that far. It's not like we heaved you a mile and, and Jonah's paddling there and the sea is calm. And we don't get the sense that the fish sort of jumped out of the water and snatched Jonah out of the air. I mean, when Jonah hits the water, it goes totally calm. And there's that moment where you go, what is going to happen? I mean, they're caught in that sort of what should we do now moment. And you know, I had, I've had those moments before, and I'm sure you have, where, where the, the things in your life that, that go chaotic or that, that, are, that are raging sort of out of control, there's that moment when something happens where you just feel like, what now? I mean, what is my response? You know, I, t- I told this story at lunch the other day when we were hanging out with some friends, and, and I don't know how it came up, and I, I may have even mentioned it here before, but it's kind of interesting. I think it bears repeating, but I had a very similar interaction with uh, some firemen one time, except take away the boat, take away the ocean, take away throwing me in. It was a source still kind of awkward kind of experience. And when, when Meredith and I were dating, I, I had this kind of full-size Bronco, and it caught on fire one time while we were on a date. And so nothing's cooler than when your car catches on fire and you're on a, on a date trying to impress somebody. But I, we were going to Blockbuster to rent a movie, and, and we were driving, pulling the parking lot, and smoke started coming through the vents of my car. And I, mean, I, was, I was 20 at the time, and so I thought, I don't really know what to do. So I ran around front, and I had this thing that I remembered learning from, uh, I don't know, some TV show, which is if your car's on fire, you never throw up the hood, because oxygen will rush in there. So the first thing I do is I just throw up that hood, man. Fire just goes, whoosh, and just flames out at me. And, and I know that fires in cars are not like, they don't mix. There's gas in there. So I kind of go into hysteria mode. The fire ends up dying down, but I run into Blockbuster, and I'm like, my car's on fire, my car's on fire, and Roy, I'll never forget his name, in, in an act of supreme heroism that is unparalleled to anything I've ever seen in my life, reaches under the Blockbuster ca- uh, counter, and he pulls out a fire extinguisher that's like this big, reaches out, he puts one hand on the counter, and leaps over. And I'm, I'm just amazed. He leaps over and he runs for the door. The lady behind him calls 911. And the fire station was, I mean, it was seriously like four minutes away. I can already hear the, um, the, the sirens going as Roy's in a dead sprint to the car. And I'm in tow. And I think Meredith is, is standing out there looking. And, and Roy in his blockbuster shirt is like, and he's racing out there, and he's got this fire extinguisher, and he pulls the thing out like in mid-stride. And I'm thinking, I need to go to Blockbuster training, because these guys are awesome, right? And, and so he is in full sprint, and the fire truck is actually now kind of racing into the parking lot. And, and he turns the corner, and he, and he turns to my car, and there's, there's a little fire there. I mean, the thing is actually on fire. And right about the time when, when Roy goes to point that fire extinguisher at the car, the fire truck pulls up, and I'm telling you, they jump out in full battle gear. Oxygen tanks, you know, they come piling out of there. I think one had an axe, you know. I mean, they're racing out, and Roy goes, and the fire just goes away. And then all the firemen jump in front of the car like this, and Roy's standing there, and there's no fire anymore. And they were like standing around, and no one knew what to do. It was this weird kind of, the fireman, one guy was going for the hose, and, and Roy's standing there like, yes! And I look at these firemen that are all dressed up now, you know, and, and the fire's out, and Roy's just kind of turns, and he walks away, and he's holding this thing, and a little bit of smoke kind of smoldered around. The firemen are all standing around the car looking at it like, know, know what to do. And, and I didn't know what to do because I didn't know if you tipped them or like, you, you know, and so I felt like I should apologize for having them slide down the pole and get all dressed up. And, and, and so I, I didn't know what to do. And so I was, I didn't know if they were going to bill me. I mean, I was 20. I didn't know how this worked. And so it was this sort of weird moment of saying, 
what happens now? And, and I, I really think that the sailors were in this kind of crazy place. I mean, they've seen these, these things transpire. They've gone from being radically petrified, I mean, radically petrified to the point of thinking they were going to die, to taking the life of another man, only to watch the seas go totally calm. And then we find out that as that happens, these sailors have the only imaginable response, and that is worship. It says that they greatly feared the Lord. And I'll tell you a bit more about this word of fear in a second. But they greatly feared the Lord. And they made sacrifices to him right there on the boat. And they made vows to him. We see these sailors have this life-changing moment in the presence of the Lord. And then it says that God provided this great fish. Sort of the, the climax of what we know to be the story. And the fish came and swallowed Jonah. Now we get details of all this amazing story, but we don't get details where we really want details. I mean, we get to hear about the storms and the waves and how high they were and all those things, but we don't get to hear about how this fish just gobbled Jonah. Was he sinking? Was he, you know, was it like Shamu? I mean, what happened? But nonetheless, everyone is amazed and God provides a fish. And you know, as I was thinking through these verses this week and really thinking about how I wrestle with the Lord I was really struck by two things that I think are really fascinating. And then one really, what I believe, one really powerful truth. But two really interesting things and one really powerful truth. And the funny thing is, they don't really have anything to do with Jonah and the fish. I mean, we're going to get to the fish next week, I promise. We're going to explore what God was doing when he provided that, that fish. But really, the first two are about the sailors, and the second one really is about God himself. And, and we really see some very interesting things happening here in the life of these sailors. I mean, the first thing that we see is that the sailors tried to save Jonah's life. I mean, there's some unmistakable I- irony here. I mean, God gives Jonah a word to go and preach to the great city of Nineveh, a city full of pagans and heathens that were non-Jewish people who did not know the Lord. And we're going to find out in chapter 3, the reason Jonah didn't want to preach to him was because he didn't want God to have mercy on him. He would rather them die. And we're going to learn that in a few chapters. He would rather them die than to have God show mercy to them. And yet we find these sailors here, pagan as the people of Nineveh. I mean, they are heathen and pagans as well. Yet they are unwilling to see Jonah die, even though he brought all this calamity on them. Even though it is his fault that they are close to death. They are unwilling to kill him. Yet the man of God, the prophet of God, would rather see the the people of Nineveh perish than to see them saved by God. And so the sailors try and save Jonah's life. They begin to row with everything they have. They begin to plead with God and say, God, please don't hold us accountable. But finally they come to a place where they surrender, where they ultimately realize that they can't battle the waves and the wind, and ultimately they can't win against Jehovah, God. And they surrender, which was the very thing that Jonah was unwilling to do. I mean, it's so funny to me to think that these, these, these pagan sailors had come to the very place that the man of God would not come to. That they were willing to lay it down before God and say, our will, we are battling against your will, and we give up because you will win. Yet Jonah was willing to die. His pride was willing to drive him to literal death rather than surrender to the Lord. We explored this a little bit last week, and I just find it so fascinating that sometimes it's our very selves that limit our ability to really experience all that God has for us. 
that our own pride and our own lives get in the way that we are unwilling to lay down the things that we are holding so tightly to and we miss out on God's promise and God's blessing. And here is Jonah, prophet, mouthpiece of God, and he doesn't even get to witness the conversion of these pagan sailors. But I just find it really interesting that, that they came to this place where they were willing to surrender, and Jonah, follower of the Lord, prophet of God, would sooner die. And, and I'm struck because I find myself in that category sometimes. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say that I'm willing to die physically in opposition to the Lord, but I, I'm willing to, to fight with everything I can to make sure that I get my way. And that my variation of God's will, and the variation that, that, that serves me best, I am willing to fight with everything I have to keep it. My safety and my security. Yet these pagan sailors come to a place where they recognize the power and presence of God and they lay it down and I find that fascinating and I think it's a, a picture that a lot of us that have grown up in church and grown up as Christians or grown up around this sort of cultural Christianity have such a, a much more difficult time surrendering our lives than, than someone that meets Jesus is just radically overtaken with his power and his majesty and we let our pride be that one thing that keeps us from experiencing all that God has for us. So the sailors try and save Jesus or save Jonah, which is really interesting. That just for what it's worth. The second thing that, that I find fascinating in there is that the sailors actually meet the Lord. I mean, isn't it like they just have a simple encounter? I mean, they really meet the Lord. They have this sort of powerful transformation experience. And we see really three things unfold there. I mean, once they throw Jonah in and the sea goes calm right? It says that they greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to him and they made vows to him. Now when we see the word fear of the Lord used in scripture, we really see it unpacked in scripture, there's really two things that surround it. And it's not terror. It's not the same word that's really used for the sailors were terrified of the sea. The word fear used in these categories in reference to God really um, carries two things with it. The first one is it carries reverence. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, it begins with reverence, this notion, this idea that I have come face to face with the majesty and power and magnificent glory of God. And in that presence, in light of that, I recognize that I am nothing. That in God's majestic wonder, I am so small and so insignificant that I come to this place of reverence. And culturally, we wrestle with this because we've created a God who is our friend. We have created Buddy Jesus. We have created that, that picture of God who we run to when things are tough, and we cry on his shoulder, and he picks us up, and he carries us and leaves footprints in the sand, and all of it is really great. And that's not all wrong, but it's very dangerous because God is still God. He is still the one that hung the stars. He is still the one that inspires awe and is full of majestic wonder. This is still God, the one who is unapproachable, who Moses had to remove his very sandals and no one could look upon his face, whose very presence was so holy that we could not stand in it and live. This is that same God. We worship here this morning that same God. 
See, the fear of the Lord begins with reverence. It begins with a healthy understanding that in God's presence, I am absolutely nothing. I don't care who you are in this world, what you've accomplished, what you own, how wealthy you are, what companies you run. In God's presence, you are insignificant. I am too. The fear of the Lord begins with that understanding of reverence, and the fear of the Lord ends always in worship. The result of that understanding, who God is and who I'm not, is worship. All through Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, we see people coming face to face with the greatness and grandeur and power of God or the person of Jesus Christ, and the only response they have is worship. They fall on their face. They surrender their lives. We're seeing the sailors in this moment. They greatly feared, had reverence for the Lord. They experienced his power. I mean, this is a, a miracle of epic proportions. They've never seen anything like it. They just threw a man into the sea, and the sea went calm. And they worship. They offer sacrifices. It tells us that they gave sacrifices to the Lord. This was the Jewish way of approaching God. In fact, it was the only way someone could approach God was via sacrifice. This wasn't some sort of simple sacrifice to an idol of a God, the one that just happened to save them. This was the Jewish practice of sacrificing so that they could approach the Lord. In light of what they've just seen, these sailors sacrifices a way of approaching and worshiping God. The only right response they could find was worship notice that it wasn't dancing around and going crazy and trying to collect the cargo they just thrown overboard it was absolute fall to the ground and worship and sacrifice to God and the third thing we see happen in their lives is they made vows to the Lord in other words they had such a powerful kind of transformational experience that they vowed to follow the Lord. And you know why this is significant? It's significant because the timing of these vows is really important. When do you and I make vows to God? We make vows when things are awful, when things are crazy, when we're stuck, when we're about to lose our job, when our marriage is falling apart. We vow, God, if you will save me from this, I will go to church every day for the rest of my life. God, if you deliver me from this, I promise I will never drink again. God, if you deliver me from this, I will give a tenth of all I have. I promise I'll start giving to the church. God, if you do this, please. I mean, that's when we make vows. Because we need God to get us out of something. And so we vow, God, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. What is that? I mean, they're idle words. How many of us have ever really fallen through with that? And I guarantee you, everyone in this room at some point in time, whether we were 10 or whether we were 45, had made one of those promises to God laying in bed at night and said, God, if you, if, you do, if you save them, if you please don't let them die, God, if you, if you save my job, if you save my marriage, I promise I will never touch that stuff again. Whatever it is, we've all been there. And we all know that they're idle promises because our sinful nature takes over again. But what do the sailors do? They make vows and sacrifices to the Lord after God has delivered them. In other words, they're saying, we have seen something so significant and so powerful that it has changed our lives and we will follow you. I, mean, I really love this picture because Jonah, so wrapped up in himself, so selfishly driven by his fear of, of following and surrendering his life to the Lord, is missing perhaps one of the greatest moments in this text. 
which is the conversion of these pagan heathen sailors. And Jonah the preacher, the mouthpiece of God, was drowning. I just love that picture. I love that picture because it's, it powerfully points to this one truth that I don't want you to miss this morning. And that is this. God will accomplish his will. Now, I know you're sitting here saying, I mean, we know that. But really think about it. God will accomplish his will. What we've seen over these past few weeks is nothing short of a remarkable series of events. The calling of God, the pursuing of Jonah, the coming of the storm, Jonah being thrown over, ultimately swallowed by this fish, sailors being, being transformed by who God is. But the remarkable thing in all this is that Jonah was willing to let the people of Nineveh perish rather than hear the word of the Lord. He was willing to die because he was in such great opposition to that. Yet, these pagan heathen sailors have just had their lives changed by the Lord. What we're going to realize over the next three weeks is that God will accomplish his will, period. There is nothing that you and I can do to thwart, get in the way of, or distract from God's will. As we're going to see, God is going to accomplish something unbelievably amazing in the Assyrian Empire. We are going to see people by the thousands come to know the Lord. And one of the greatest revivals in all of Scripture. When Jonah becomes obedient later on, we're going to see him share in God's blessing. But God will accomplish his will. What God will do, God is going to do. Now here's the principle I want you to understand from this. God's will will be accomplished through the obedience of his children and we can share in his blessing. Or God's will will be accomplished through the disobedience of his children and we will miss God's blessing. Either way, God's will will be accomplished. God will do his will. Now you and I, when we struggle and fight for control, when we battle with our lives, we are living in active disobedience and we are missing out of the promise of God. God's will will happen. It will take place. God will accomplish his will. Yet we will miss the blessing and live in misery. That is the promise of Scripture. But if we surrender our lives, if we give our hearts over and we say, Jesus, everything I am for you, God's will will be accomplished and we will share in the blessing and plan and purpose of God. One results in the joy of his people and one results in the misery. But either way, God will accomplish his will. Nothing will thwart the will of God. Whether principalities of this world, whether things in a spiritual realm, or whether you're flat out running from God, God will do what God is going to do. Now this may not seem like it's important to you right now, but I want you to just think about it for a minute. Because it really does boil down to how you respond to God. If God is going to accomplish it no matter what, because he is God, further evidence of his amazing sovereignty. The question is, are you willing to live in such active disobedience that your life misses the blessing that God has for you? Or are you willing to say, Jesus, I want to share in your promise. I want to share in your blessing. And so I surrender and I want to be obedient to you. Now, people of God, we spend so much time fighting God for control that I think we miss out on God's blessing because we're so wrapped up in our own life and what's best for me that if we became obedient people, followers of Christ, we could share in his amazing blessing. 
And all this brings us back to the question we really started with, which is what is holding you back from surrendering your life to the Lord? All of it, every part of it. That peace that you so desperately don't want to let go of. What is holding you back from letting go of all of that and saying, God, I want to follow you. I want to be a part of your blessing. I want to share in your promise and your plan. Because the promise that God has for us is beyond our imagination. It's beyond anything that we can, we can fathom and understand. That God does not need us to accomplish his purpose or his will. But God wants to include us to bless our lives, to reveal himself to us. We oftentimes think that God needs us. Like God needed Jonah. God didn't need Jonah. The Bible tells us that God could use the rocks to proclaim his goodness. But God wanted to include Jonah in his blessing. And so God pursued him and pursued him, much to Jonah's misery. But God's will was going to be accomplished. So right now, if you're on a full run from the Lord, if you are running and hiding, and you are doing everything you can to avoid that call from God, whether it's to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, or whether it's to let go of your finances, or whether it's to just release this thing, whatever it is, your running from the Lord is disobedience, and you are missing on God's blessing for your life. Just missing it. And maybe the God of the universe is calling you to live beyond your imagination. And the question that really has struck me as, as I just close all this out is this. The one that's really confronted my heart the most is this. Is, is my imagination for what my life should be holding me back from what my life could be? I mean, think about that for a minute. And God has really pressed that on me personally. Is, that, is my understanding of what my life should be, what I think I deserve, what I think I should have financially and, and stuff-wise and respect-wise and, and family-wise, is my understanding of what my life should be, my imagination of what my life should be, is it holding me back from the life that God has for me, what life could be? Because this is where Jonah is. His understanding of what his life should be was holding him back from one of the greatest, most powerful experiences that he could possibly be a part of, as we're going to see the conversion of Nineveh take place. Oftentimes we think we deserve things. We deserve financial situation that is easy, or we deserve this, or we deserve that. And our imagination of what life should be gets in the way of what God is calling us to. What is it going to take for you to surrender your heart and your life and lay it all down and get out of control? Let's pray together.